Hello and welcome to Faith in Politics, JPIT's podcast. I'm Rodney, and today I'm joined by my JPIT colleague, Lucy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, as you guys know, Meg was, was left. She did announce that in the last one. And I've had to, to bring Lucy on here. You've and, had to. Well, I didn't have to, but I just felt Lucy was best placed to be on this podcast with me. Not only is she a colleague, she's a fellow intern like me. But also, Lucy listens to the podcast a lot. She's I do. I listen to every episode multiple times. Exactly. <laughs> She's been giving us a lot of feedback. A good thing about having Lucy with us is that Lucy is, what would we call it, launching her project. So we've all had to do a project as our time has come into an end at JPIT that we would like JPIT and just general, generally churches to go on with. And Lucy has been doing a a project about ethical banking in churches. So it's great for us to have her on here to speak about it and just like get to know more about it. So Lucy, what is ethical banking and your project generally? What does it aim to do? Well, they are two separate questions. So I'll tackle them in order. Uh, What is ethical banking? Ethical banking is, so most high street banks, for example, actually I'm not gonna name names. I'll probably be bad form. Um, (laughs) most high street banks um, provide financial services including loans to all sorts of industries including some which are would be considered um, not ethical we'll use the word unethical not ethical Um, uh, for example fossil fuel production or nuclear weapons producing companies or companies who don't pay fair tax or companies who use Uh, forced or slave labour somewhere in their um, supply line. So none of those would be considered to be an ethical company, but um, a lot of them aren't excluded from um, having financial services provided by, including loans, which is the big sort of financial one, um, many high street banks. And so ethical banking is a form of banking which is trying to build a better world by not investing in those things which are fundamentally broken and not things that we would want to see in God's world, for example, um, arms production. Um, or um, And the second part of that question was, what's the project? So yeah. the resource is guidance to help local churches, and there are two, and there's one specifically for local Baptist churches, and there's one for local churches in general. Um, and it's a, a guide to think about faith and finance, um, which includes ethical banking, but it, that's not the only focus. It includes kind of explanations, theological reflections, um, and a practical guide to taking action, um, which can include uh, switching your local church's current account to an ethical provider. Every local church has a charity or company current account that they will use for day-to-day things like buying biscuits, etc., cetera, uh, and whatever else it is that churches spend money on. I assume it's mostly biscuits. Um, So it's a kind of starting place for having conversations and thinking as a church about how mission and money might connect and how that might um, go beyond uh, our sort of traditional charitable giving as a church and uh, also thinking about where we hold our money, which bank we bank with, whether or not that aligns with our values as a church. Um, I think the idea of it is that It doesn't really matter what your local church's ethical priorities are, or even if you've not identified your local church's ethical priorities, this this guide aims to 
take local churches on the journey of finding out what it is that they really care about and then using their money to take action on that thing. And then hopefully that will be a starting point for all sorts of social good that churches can do. So as many of you would know, um, this is our last Faith in Politics episode for our year. Um, we'll have new interns coming in in September and onwards and they will be doing the new episodes from there on. Um, so we just thought it would be good to have a review of the year of this podcast and consider our favourite episodes and interviews and just really share that with you. Um, obviously Meg's not here, but in Lucy, we have an avid listener of the podcast. Um, I feel like she's obviously best suited for this. Would you like to go first or should I go first? You may go first, as I think you're the expert on faith and politics. All right. I'll say my favourite interview would definitely be the first one um, with Shane Claiborne. I think it was such an incredible interview. I think I actually didn't know who Shane was prior to the interview. It was literally a, a recommendation made by Megan. Like, you watched a few interviews and you're just like, oh my goodness, we're having a radical on here. And so <laughs> I was a bit like, oh, what's going to happen here? Then it was, but it was so interesting because we were dealing with someone that like identified as a red letter Christian. And that was intriguing to me. And I think for me, in terms of that interview, why it's a favourite because it came at the right time. I think um, we recorded that interview two or three weeks before the American elections, the presidential elections. So it was quite um, interesting um, really getting to grips with key issues about whether um, we should be political or whether we shouldn't be political. And Shane had a very interesting idea on it he didn't really believe that we should be voting for any political party we shouldn't have any loyalty to any political parties and I think it was also timely in terms of understanding the situation within America and why he felt that election was so important and and then always when you do that when you do something that you're not used to doing it as in a podcast when you do it for the first time I, th I think it always tends to be memorable doesn't it and somewhat special so I'll say that one for me yeah I, re I really enjoyed it it was the first episode of faith and politics that I'd ever listened to um so I did I really thought it was really interesting um and I don't think I'd ever really heard people discussing faith in politics in such a kind of um practical but also sort of discursive academic way before um in, in such a long form way and I thought that was just really interesting and I really enjoyed it um, and that's also the first one that I thought of, probably because it was the first one you recorded, um, when you said to think about what my favourite episodes were. But I've been through the archive. I haven't re-listened to all of them, but I've been back through to remind myself. Um, and to be honest, it was actually really hard to pick a favourite, especially because I haven't done any of the interviews. So they're all, it's like, oh, the new episode of Faith and Politics is out. And then it's like a 40 minute experience for me, except with you, it's like a two week experience doing it. Yeah. Um, and so there were there were lots of them that I really enjoyed. I actually really enjoyed Steve Baker's episode yes. last month um, because I, it's just so like I had I didn't 
know anything about him and I just found it to be like an absolutely fascinating window into a world that is just completely alien to me like a political understanding um, and I thought his reading of of the Old Testament as like a, a, a series of failed governments was just like fascinating um, and so that that wasn't one where I was like I agree with every single point you've made here in fact yeah um, <laughs> but it was definitely one where I felt kind of interested by it and challenged by it. and I thought your reflection with, with Meg was also really interesting as well. So today we've got an interview with Emma Hardy. Emma's the MP for Hull and Russell and um, she speaks about education, the importance of her faith, faith in politics. She also goes on to speak about um, the levelling up agenda and her work within this pandemic and the role of the church within politics. Let's go into the interview. Emma, it's nice to have you here this morning. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. So you're one of, I would say, many Christian politicians. And I think it's a general question we always ask people on how did you become a Christian? Was it like something you grew along your journey of life or it has a background in relation to your family and growing up? Okay, so it's probably a little bit of everything in that I always was and identified as being um, a Christian, a Methodist, because my grandma was. So it came from that side of the family. However, when I was younger, we didn't regularly go to church, sort of just for the religious festivals. It wasn't a big part of my life. And actually, it was when I had my own children that I wanted to make it make it a bigger part of my life. And there was one day I was out walking, um, walking with the pram. I think my youngest wasn't going to sleep very well. If anyone can relate if they're a parent when you're out pushing the pram, sort of pounding the streets, hoping the baby goes to sleep um, with my children. And I felt called to go into the Methodist church, which I hadn't been outside of, as I say, you know, going for Christmas, going for Easter, going for the festival. And so I went, I went in and I just felt immediately at home and very welcomed. And, and then from then on, attended more regularly because I wanted it, I wanted my children to grow up with it being there. And even if, you know, at the moment I've got a teenager, because it's quite a while ago when I first first stepped back in there, um, who at the moment doesn't want to go every week, but I think that's fine. But she knows that that's part of her upbringing. It's part of her identity and it's always going to be there for her. And I really wanted them to have that. So. I suppose it was more when I became a mother that it became a bigger part of my life. You're now in the political arena. So what was your journey to politics, to being elected in 2017? What was life before that? Ah, well, it was very normal. Um, I was a primary teacher. I was an infant school teacher. So uh, I left university, worked for a little while in a children's nursery because I loved have always loved working with children and small children are hilarious <laughs> you get to work with you get to work with small kids they're so funny um and so I worked in a nursery for a while but it's tough working in a nursery it's generally minimum wage or pretty much just above minimum wage it's a hard job uh, and so I thought well I wanted to work with children but you know I'd like to get paid a bit more than I'm getting paid so I went to train as a teacher and became a primary school teacher and I did that for 11 years I probably still would be there if the government hadn't changed uh, when it did in 2010. So 
they brought in huge changes to education, which obviously some people support and, and some people don't support. I wasn't very keen on some of those changes. And so I got involved in the National Union of Teachers, which is a trade union. And through the trade union, I was sent to lobby my MP. And my MP at the time was Alan Johnson. Uh, so which is a, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. I went to go meet him, lobbied him. And I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to join the Labour Party. So I only joined the Labour Party in 2011. And um, so decided to join the Labour Party. And I wrote to him saying, thank you so much for meeting me. It was such a pleasure. I, I've decided to join the Labour Party and I want to get in, want to help you. And then, and then that was it, really, as they say, the rest is history. So when Alan stood down and retired in 2017, I applied to become the Labour candidate, but I never... I never, never expected it. I certainly didn't. Um, yeah, I read recently that um, an interview where they asked you why you decided to go into politics and it was Michael Gove. <laughs> it's really funny because when I, I spoke to one of my colleagues and I said, I must be the only person inspired by Michael Gove because I I just didn't, I didn't agree with the changes he made to education. And, and I... And I felt like this small, tiny voice, you know, this infant school teacher near Hull saying, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. And I wanted to I wanted to try and change things. And, and I suppose in a way, working with children, working with education policy is still very much what what drives me. A lot of the work I've done in the constituency, the work I've done with the Methodist Church, setting up the Reuniform project locally is generally around children and around education but it was quite funny I was talking to one of my colleagues and an older colleague and I said I you know it's awful to say Michael Gove inspired me to join um to join the Labour Party and become politically active and he said to me don't worry Emma dear he said it was Margaret Thatcher that inspired me (laughs) 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 that was brilliant and I think sometimes you can be as inspired by something you wholeheartedly agree with us as, as inspired by something you wholeheartedly disagree with. The importance of your faith, how important has it been in political life for you or is that something you keep quite separate? No, very. Um, I think, you know, since, I mean, I never imagined when I was elected in 2017 that we'd go through all the um, obsess of Brexit and it has been for the whole country such a divisive whichever side you know people are on and I definitely don't want to go into that now but whatever side people are on it was divisive it was difficult it was a horrible experience for everyone I don't think anyone went through that and thought oh you know this has worked out great for me that was really difficult and then a pandemic <laughs> so I'm just really I'm hoping for a bit of bits of calm but I, 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 I honestly, I don't know what I, I don't know getting through all of that and how difficult it was, how people, I don't, it was very, very difficult to imagine how you, how I could have done that without having faith in, and without having that, um, being able to, you know, cast my, my burdens on and, and, and take that weight off my shoulders and, and how it, it must be, must be incredibly difficult. And, and I feel quite, lucky is not maybe not the right word but that I have this and and I'm able because it was you know it was times were really difficult so it's definitely something I've relied on an awful an awful lot through difficult times and and through making difficult decisions and I think through a lot of decisions have to we have to make you do think about well okay you know what's the right thing to do 
in this instant, not what necessarily do you know uh, does my political party want me to do or but what is the right thing to do and and I think having having faith and having that guidance and having that support means a lot to me. You made an interesting point there about um, finding that balance and we, we often hear about politicians keen on doing the right thing how do you find that balance? It's really I find it really difficult to sometimes you know we all make mistakes and sometimes what we think is the right thing at one point turns out not to be and we can only try but I, I'm really interested I suppose in using my role as an MP to make to make a practical difference because you know I'm an opposition backbench MP I'm not going to be able to introduce laws and change you know change it doesn't work that way the governing party introduced the laws opposition MPs can introduce <clears throat> amendments to try and change bits and pieces but you know if I wanted to reintroduce sure start or have a huge investment in speech and language therapy I can't I'm you know opposition MP but there's a lot you can do in the local community with the role that you've got and that's where I've been really interested in as I say in the reuniform project I've done with the Methodist Church I've got another idea brewing about something I want to do as well with the church and 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 I think setting up these schemes and doing these things locally will continue will continue regardless. And I think that's where you can really make a difference because no one gives you a job description as a member of parliament. No one says, right, here's, you know, here's your criteria. This is what you must do. It's very much how do you use the title and the influence you have? You know, I've got those letters MP. How can I use that to make a difference in the community where I see need and you know and where I can sort of you know advertise and support things and I think that's what that's what I've tried tried to do because you know because knowing the fact that you know my party is not in not in power at the moment. You mentioned about how you try to build relationships with um, churches and with the Methodist Church particularly you've done a bit of work where would you say the church fits into politics or just their role for society generally? I think I would never involve the church in party politics um, because I think that should be separate. But for if I give you, tell you what I've done. So, um, I mean, obviously I know a lot of these people in the Methodist church, clearly. And I had this idea of setting up re-uniform, which is where people donate school uniform they've grown out of, and then it's given out to people who need it. And so I spoke to um, a friend of mine who works for the church locally. She spoke to Reverend David Spears, who's just moving on, which is very sad, uh, from Trinity Methodist Church. And he said, well, we can help with that. You know, we've got these massive buildings. We've got all of this space. We have um, a congregation full of people who'd volunteer. And, and it's become a project we've now been running for two years and we've given out um, uniform to over a thousand children across the city because of it and I think it's not it's not party politics to say you know I'm not asking asking their voting intentions but it's just seeing there's a need a school uniform costs an awful lot we know it does we know that some families living in whole struggle to pay for it seems to me there's a win-win here there's families wanting to clear out and get rid of it there's families wanting it and if the church can put those two together then then we've created a you know a winning situation and I don't think that that's not about um, 
that's not about party politics it's not about votes it's about I think social activism it's more about the church going in and and filling that need and, and I have in the past as well when I've had uh, people come to me in desperate situations because of um, I'm sure you understand that you know the no recourse to public funds and, and how destitute that leaves people and I've had people uh, come to me with nothing nothing um, and I'll ring up the church I'll ring up people I know in the church and just say I've had this family come they've no recourse to public funds and they'll say okay Emma where do they live we can be tell them we can be there on one case this lady came with her baby and her two young children um, she was you know no recourse to public funds she didn't have anything she came to see me on a Friday afternoon didn't have anything and her children were only meal they were getting was what they were getting at school through the free school meals um, and she came to see me I rang uh, a friend of mine from the church and explained the situation she was like tell her to wait there I'll be there. She came within an hour. She took the lady, took her to the supermarket, bought her enough food to get her through the weekend until we could get, you know, the statutory services involved in trying to support her. And, and I think that's not party politics. That's, I suppose, having that relationship with the church. And there's many times I've called on people involved in the church. You know, there's, I could give you many examples of where I said to them, there's someone in need. Because the problem is, is those statutory services aren't really there and when you look around who is offering support for people with no recourse to public funds who is that offering uh, you know this additional support it's the churches the churches are stepping in and offering it and I think I so I'm working really uh, work really closely with them because well one I believe in obviously what they're doing and they want to make a difference and they want to help and and it, it would be very I, but I don't see that as politics so much as social activism. I think we're now heading to somewhat of a post-COVID recovery. And there's been many people that have been affected by COVID, many vulnerable groups. What do you feel the biggest responsibility of MPs like yourself are? And what do you think can be done over these next 12 to 18 months for people to come out here and have some of a strong footing to go forward in the future? I think it's that, you know, we, you can't, it's that idea that people have about everyone having the same opportunity. Most people agree, which regardless of which what political party you're involved in, that people should have the same opportunity. To have the same opportunity, you need to accept that not everybody starts from the same place. Now, the family I just mentioned and the little boy whose mum had no recourse, you know, they're not in the same situation as other families of resources. And we've seen this in the pandemic. We've seen this with technology. We've seen this in the families whose children were trying to learn on phones with no Wi-Fi compared to, you know, my I know my children are privileged because they were able to have a Chromebook each and, and study at home. They're, you know, they're, you know, they're very lucky, but certainly that's not the case for all families at all. So we've seen, I think there's been a greater understanding of how inequality affects opportunity. Um, and I think, and I'm hoping there can be a lot of joint political work on this to say, and the government have been saying, well, actually, yes, we accept now that children all need a device to learn on, which is, if you imagine pre-pandemic, it would not have been the case that the government would be giving out free laptops to families across the country, but they've accepted there's a need. They've accepted there's a need for there to be food now provided to children on free school meals in the holidays and the whole city council are doing that throughout the whole of the summer holidays. They've even passed an affordable school uniform bill to say that school uniforms should be cheaper. So 
actually the pandemic, I think, has highlighted the things that we've known were there in society. But and Marcus Rashford, who is just amazing, and the work that he's done in bringing this to the nation's attention, have helped to highlight these things. So I think things, attitudes are changing. Um, I think still more needs to be done. And, and I think coming out of this, there's a lot I think we need to be thinking about, not just in terms of children and catch up and support, but the isolated and the lonely, the older people in society. And I think it's brilliant we're talking about children and catch up and mental health, but I think we need to be thinking about those isolated people. And the church has an amazing role to play in bringing people back together into those social groups, looking at combating loneliness, look at combating isolation. And, and as politicians, I think, you know, we need to be thinking about that as well. Uh, what are we funding and how are we, how are we supporting them? And so there's an, I still think there's a lot more the government could do uh, than it's doing, but you probably expect me to say that. <laughs> and lastly, to bring it back home for you, the levelling up agenda. I'm sure it must have caused a level of excitement for your constituents in Hull. What do you think it can bring for Hull and what are you looking for? And are you on board with it generally? What does it mean? Well, <laughs> the levelling up agenda in terms of applying for funds, you can only apply for, I think, mean, is it transport? You know, it's really tight criteria and what you can apply the money for. And it's 20 million, which isn't going to make a long-term difference. If we want to make a long-term difference to people's lives in Hull, we need to be looking, which is actually a conservative report. It's the 1,001 Days by Andrea Ledson looking at early you're looking at from conception to the first 1,001 days of a child's life when so much development happens for that child and what needs to, the interventions that need to be in and supporting those children and supporting those families. The problem we've got, and this is all governments are guilty of this, is the short-termism, thinking about the next general election. It's easy to say, well, let's give 20 million pounds and you can have a, I don't know, a, a new building in the town centre or you can do up your train station and then you can put it on a leaflet and say, we've delivered, look, we've got a new train, you know, a shiny new train station. The stuff that doesn't probably win votes and, and takes 20 years to change is what are we doing for children's lives and babies born today? That's going to make a difference in 20 years time when they become parents. How are we changing their lives to stop mistakes being repeated generationally? What are we, you know, and the problem with that is in 20 years time, there might not be the same political parties around to reap the, the rewards from it other than the rewards we've made in society. So I find the whole, you know, if, if leveling up and changing people's life chances is for real, then we must be looking at early intervention. We must be looking at bringing back those therapy support services. We must be looking at children with uh, special needs and what we're doing to support them. We should be looking at the number of children being excluded from school, the number of children with social and emotional problems. But all these things are not very, they're not three word slogans. You're not gonna stick them on a bus. Uh, you're not gonna put them on a leaflet. You know, introducing speech therapy for children is not something that's probably gonna galvanize the country to come up and vote but actually you know if you look what's happened in Estonia they've done it and their results are going up because it makes a really big difference to young children but they're not sexy policy uh, announcements so if leveling up's real then we need to be looking at long-term changes to life chances and we should be starting with young people but I'm sure instead we'll get a shiny new building. Mm -hmm.
think for us, in terms of looking at the interview and just what we could reflect on, I think we were quite focused and interested in her discussions and parts of the interview that focused on community. And I think for Jay Pitt and as Christians ourselves, we definitely know the importance of community and even be it from a spiritual perspective or like a societal perspective, community is always something that's seen as important. First off, Lucy, how would you define community? That's a really good question um, because, I mean, it's a good question because it's so difficult to answer. I mean, I feel like we all have a working definition of community, right? Like if you say, in my community X, then I know what you mean by that. And I suppose when Emma's talking about her conception of community as a local constituency MP, her community is her local community, but there's no reason that the, the kind of commonality I suppose a community is a group of people who all have something in common, right? And so that could be the local area in which they live, or it could be um, like a, a writer's group of young writers from around the world who meet on Zoom every month. That would also be a community. Um, but I suppose like when I was listening to this and when I was reflecting on what community is and what the church's role in community might be, um, I, I was really focusing on, on local community, specifically, I think, partly because the pandemic's really taught us that doing things online isn't really enough often, especially to kind of create that connection. Um, and when I was preparing for this, I, I read my, one of my friends from university uh, wrote a master's thesis on community, uh, the politics of community under new labor or something like that. Um, and so I, I read his thesis this morning to prepare for this. And there was one bit that kind of really um, distilled a lot of the weirdness that I was feeling around trying to define community which is uh, and I'll just read it because he says it much better than I can community is an ambiguous slippery term Gillian Rose described its nature in her posthumous volume morning becomes the law philosophy and representation the community has a universalist faith face can't speak <laughs> the community has a universalist face connoting the commonwealth the common interest the common will however it also speaks to a particularist impulse gesturing towards the distinct interest and will of a fixed set of people. This very ambiguity is what makes the term so politically potent. It provides a, bid, a bridge between two quite different ideas and allows one to refer to both without being tied down by the specificities of either. So I think that was like a really interesting summary of like the problem with using the word community in political discourse is that just it's so vague and it's used as a touchstone for good stuff, good stuff that happens probably locally. But actually, it's, um, I mean, under New Labour, people were always referring to like, or people, Tony Blair was always referring to the global community, international community, which feels like a complete, just, just doesn't really feel like it can really exist. How can that exist when a community is this particular group of people with a common set of interests? So I think that was kind of what I was feeling when I was trying to define community. And that's like a really long answer to your question. How do you define community? Because I could have just read you the OED. I would say that like, you really didn't hit the nail on the head there because when I was looking to define community, like your friend there, I came to the point where I was like, it's really ambiguous. And to be honest, I've been guilty of just like using it interchangeably and just like anytime one, just throw it in there because you really can't tie someone down. But you find that whatever circle you're in, when conversations are taking place in the suit, you feel like there's a general understanding of what one means about by it. So I think that's definitely true. I think for me, it does relate to that mutual connection support and commonalities that people share together and I find it quite interesting that um 
when people look at it in the political spectrum, they tend to focus on like the terms used like international community and new labor. And I think it's something that not only labor have been trying to like form, but also the conservative party has been trying to form right from 2010 with um, Cameron talking about the big society. So I think there's always definitely been an emphasis on the localities of people and people feeling like, all right, this is, we own this place and this town, this is our town and we know what's best and how do we identify and give this place an identity that brings this like unity and solidarity amongst people. So it's very interesting. Yeah, I was thinking um, it does provide this kind of unitary, unity and solidarity. And that's like kind of what the, the implication of the word community used and where the positive implication is. But I was also thinking that at a local level, given a lot of our um, kind of local communities um, in the UK generally, but also all over the world, um, people who are similar to each other tend to end up living together. And so I, or living close to each other, uh, whether that's in terms of kind of um, like the, the particular jobs that people are doing. So like the people who live in London might do, might be more likely to do a particular kind of job or um, like how well off you are, how, where in the social, like um, socioeconomic spectrum you fall. Um, and so I went, I was wondering if the kind of the politics of local community might mean that our eyes kind of get stuck at this local level um, or I think community can be a really powerful unit for social change or local communities can when they come together and it doesn't need to um, be so inward looking, but it does really need direction structure to prevent itself, to prevent sort of local community organising, just becoming about the people we see who in many communities is people who just look like us. I think that's a very interesting point and it also bears the question about how does that fit in with obviously the government's leveling up agenda they speak about um more community power and more community influence and trying to build structures and i wonder how that is incorporated in it because i think um with emma's interview she didn't really understand what it meant but she knew that it could benefit her constituents in terms of transport and i think yeah it's not a faith in politics episode if you don't try and define leveling up <laughs> yeah so i think it was it was quite interesting to get that um feeling that there's a bit of uncertainty here but do you also from what you're saying do you also feel like there's a place for com for community building and like certain provisions that are needed for that society yeah i think there is i think i mean when Emma was talking about her reuniform project i think that was like a really interesting way of thinking about community and way of kind of physicalizing uh, the role of community, um, kind of people putting their school uniform back into the system so that they're used by other people. And you can literally see the effects of the community going around in this bit of uniform, which keeps cropping up and then is eventually worn down and replaced by another. A kind of interesting way to think about what community's role is with social provision is maybe to sort of try to navigate the way that community fits in with politics whether that's party politics or Westminster politics or local politics um I was kind of I was really interested to hear what Emma was saying about reading the form which is an amazing initiative by the way um because she kept saying it wasn't political and I know what she means like she wasn't there with her Labour banner or her Labour leaflets being like you should vote Labour it wasn't deliberately party political it was about bringing a community together but also the fact that she as a Labour MP had organised it, does make it in some way political, doesn't it? 
Um, and I think that she she does actually recognise that because she brought it as an anecdote to a podcast called Faith in Politics. So I suppose that when we're getting into the question of what political means as well as what community means, um, Emma's reflections on the role of being an opposition MP and kind of building community and, you know, building relations in your constituency uh, as opposed to bringing legislation did really seem to blur the lines between the two. Um, I think politics can have a really important role of politics. When I say politics, I suppose what I mean is Westminster politics can have a really important role in building community um, because it does actually provide the essentials which make it happen. For example, community happens in physical spaces. So when Emma was talking about levelling up through long-term investment in education right at the end of the interview, she really has a point because community is totally a slow burn thing and you have to build it over time. Um, and investment in education is a really important way to build a sort of long-term sustainable community. But actually, when she said, will we get a building or will we get investment in education? I kind of thought, why not both? Because actually, there are so few spaces now where you can exist just like as a person in a community without having to be like economically productive. Like basically the whole of my area of London is coffee shops and places that you have to pay to be in. And like, I can't be with my community in a coffee shop unless I pay five pounds to be there. And, you know, that's one of the things that churches can offer, which I'm sure we'll get onto later in this reflection. But um, Westminster politics is like really central in making those spaces where community can happen for free without it being like an economically burdened question that's a really important link so I don't think we should necessarily be like are you doing things in your constituency or in Westminster that's just seems like quite a false dichotomy I think it's very true and I think there's so many parts that make up a community as well um like you said we'll definitely get onto the influence of the church um has within this community but I also feel that within it within this pandemic we've been able to see the power of community so we had a lot of mutual aid groups that were set up in such a spontaneous way that were able to like um go out there and do shopping for people and bring so many things and I think mm. that creates that spirit but also I think within Westminster obviously we have that saying about there being a Westminster bubble and we've had all these things about um giving local people control and that's why we've seen a lot of mayoral elections as such I think there's an element of that but I don't know, I've never really felt, and we had this conversation before we started recording this podcast, whether there's a community spirit that's been felt. Uh, when I think about a community, I just think, oh yeah, they're in the rural areas. And I think it's something that definitely can be developed. But then it also goes to that feeling of individualism and then collectivism. And I think that's something that as a society, we've not yet grappled with. But um, there's so many lessons we can learn from COVID and the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, we, we were talking, weren't we, about, like, we both live in London, so, and we yeah. were like, is there a community in London? And kind of, um, there kind of is, but also, I live in a community which has a lot of older people, and there's a lot of, um, the, a lot of the community stuff that's set up is set up around the fact that lots of people who live near me are retired and so it can happen during the day and so I don't necessarily feel particularly welcomed into that community and so I think when we're thinking about how we build community then one of the things we have to be really thinking about carefully is 
like what does our community look like the whole community not just like most people are retired but what does the whole community look like how can we bring the whole community together um and really build community in a way that's really meaningfully inclusive I think one specific way in which we have a place and this isn't necessarily particular to churches it just happens to be true of churches is that as I have already mentioned community needs a space to happen in whether it's virtual or physical but we've talked about you know virtual is not really enough during the pandemic and I think that's you know really been shown up in the past year or so that's not really enough for local communities um and there aren't enough physical spaces in our communities which is just open um Obviously, that's like a symbol of capitalism as word relationship with urbanism and all of this kind of this idea of taking up space, which is something that should be economically productive, et cetera, et cetera. But I think as churches, we really need to push against that prevailing narrative. And we're in this really privileged position, blessed, one might say, as Christians, where we have so many buildings all around the country, multiple in every town and like hundreds and hundreds in some cities. And they can stand empty for most of the week. And I, I found it really telling that. Emma found her sort of place, her place in her community um, through just wandering into an open church building. I mean, I, I can't really think of any other building in our communities where you could do that, like maybe a library, but they're fully closing all of them at the moment. Um, and so I think that's a really like blessed place for churches. Dear God. We ask that you be with us when we need more courage and that we may be filled with your spirit to stand up and speak out, to make a better future for friends and strangers, for neighbours and enemies. May the grace we receive inspire a new life so our message of hope outvoices our fears. Amen. Thanks for listening, guys. It's been so good to do these episodes for the last year and give you guys great interviews. Please follow us on Twitter at Fitb underscore podcast and on Instagram at Faith in Politics Podcast.